Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I hope that you are doing well today. Thank you so much for listening in and engaging with our congregation through this radio broadcast. Also know that there are other ways to engage with our church during this season. If you would go to collegehills.org, you can find out more there about our on-campus gatherings and our online worship gatherings that you can live stream each week during service or even after the service is over. You can also stream them as well. Links to those online streamings are available at collegehills.org. Also, each week we have this radio broadcast and we have a pulpit sermon, and sometimes you're not able to listen to them when they are live. And so what we've decided to do is we weekly put our radio sermon and our pulpit sermon on our College Hills podcast. So if you would go to your local iTunes account and simply search College Hills Church. You can subscribe, and every Monday or Tuesday, you will get both of those sermons, and you can listen to those if you weren't able to listen to those on Sunday morning. We're currently in a series that we're calling All Things New, and we are focusing on some new things that we can tune into as we are still in this new year. And so today, I want to look at a passage in Mark chapter 3, verses twenty through 35. As we continue this sermon series, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mothers and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was standing around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity to 
listen to your word and to hear it preached and proclaimed and taught. And I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching as I seek to speak a word that's faithful to who you are and to who you're calling us to be in the world. God, bless us with soft and open hearts that we would hear your voice and we would be transformed by it more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. In his book, The Jesus Way, Eugene Peterson tells a parable to illustrate how Christians can so often become Pharisees without even realizing it. The story that he tells goes something like this. Imagine that you get a free weekend to a beautiful cabin in the woods. You arrive and the place is absolutely perfect, situated at the top of a mountain overlooking a beautiful landscape of trees. And in the cabin is this huge bay window that overlooks the beauty. It runs from one wall to the other. And there's this couch positioned perfectly where you can sit in it and take it all in. It's right in front of the bay window. And so one day, while you're staying there for this free weekend, you sit down in the couch and just stare out over this beautiful vista. And the next day, you do it again. And the next day, you do it again. Now, imagine on the fourth day, as you sit there in this comfy couch and overlook this beautiful vista, you happen to glance at the bottom right corner of this window. And there, you see a tiny smudge. And so, you get up and you get some Windex and paper towels and begin scrubbing vigorously at this small smudge in the right corner of the window. And after it's clean, you go back to the couch and you sit back down to again take in this beautiful view. But you still notice the spot in the right corner of the window. And so once again, you get up, get your Windex and paper towels, and you clear the smudge again. And you go back and you sit on the couch again, intending to see this beautiful vista in front of you. But you can't help but find your eyes moving to the bottom right of that window, paying attention to the smudge that you still see. In fact, very soon, you become so obsessed with that smudge that every time that you sit down in the couch, all of your attention goes there. And you forget about this beautiful vista that is standing right behind it. You get so focused on that one small detail that you forget the bigger, beautiful view. This is a helpful illustration from Peterson to describe how so many of us can easily become Pharisees. But it's also a helpful illustration to describe how we can often end up reading Scripture. 
We can get so focused on one single verse that we fail to see a much bigger, beautiful picture surrounding it. And I think that's very true of our text that we read today. Because we often read this passage and we focus on that annoying smudge (laughs) that is Jesus' declaration about this unforgivable sin. And we sit there wringing our hands, wondering if we're guilty of this sin. And when we sit there wringing our hands in worry, we fail to see this much larger, beautiful landscape that Mark is trying to paint for us. It's a landscape that Mark has been painting since the very first line of his gospel when he states, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And everything he says after that must be placed on this canvas of good news. This good, beautiful news that Jesus is the one through whom God is using to accomplish His will and purposes in the world. Or to quote Jesus in His very first sermon in Mark, the kingdom of God is near. The good news is that God is breaking in, that God is near, that God is up to something in the world, and you and I get to be a part of it. And so as Mark paints, as he tells these stories, they're all details and textures of this good news that God is here in the person of Jesus. God's kingdom is breaking out to the most unexpected people. Jesus calls fishermen and tax collectors to be his disciples. God's kingdom is breaking out in the most unusual ways. Jesus comes driving out demons by the power of God. God's kingdom is breaking out to the most unexpected people groups. Jesus parties with tax collectors and sinners. And God's kingdom is breaking out, according to Mark, at the most unexpected of times. Jesus heals on the Sabbath when God is supposedly resting. There is this beautiful landscape that's being developed and painted in those first few chapters of Mark's gospel that should take our breath away. If you're sitting in a 21st century view or a 21st century view, because the kingdom of God is at hand. God is showing up. God is available in ways that are refreshing. The power of God is at hand. And this, this is a landscape that Mark is painting from the very first brushstrokes of his gospel. And it is good news for everyone. At least, it's good news for most everyone. You see, we often forget that wherever there is light, there's always some shadows. And Mark makes it clear that the light of Jesus breaking in creates some shadows of conflict in this painting that he's showing us. Throughout these first three chapters, even as good news is breaking out, there is also conflict and controversy breaking out because not everyone is thrilled with what Jesus is doing. 
Not everyone is excited that Jesus is disrupting the status quo. Not everyone is thrilled with this guy who does not seem to be fitting any of the categories that they had created for God. And in our passage this morning, we see the layers of conflict all intersecting into a scene that reveals the challenge of Jesus' ministry. On one level, Jesus challenges his very own family. They actually show up on the scene to restrain him because people are saying he is out of his mind. His very own flesh and blood are challenged by the ministry of Jesus. And from the looks of it, they seem to want to save their family honor because Jesus is clearly challenging it. On another level, Jesus comes along and challenges the religious order as well. Because some of the top religious officials come along and they accuse him of being crazy, being demon-possessed, of working for Satan. They label him because that's what you do when someone doesn't fit your categories. Your categories do not fit them, so you try to force them into a category. You say you are that because when you say someone, someone is that, then they can't be anything else. And Jesus was not fitting their categories of how God should be at work in the world. And so they tried to force him into a category. And then on a third level, these accusations to Jesus help to show this third level of conflict that is at work in this scene. And that is on the level of the cosmic, the unseen world. The teachers of the law admit and accuse that there is something at work on the level of the power of Satan when they look at Jesus' ministry. They believe that something is going on with this man that is impacting the unseen forces around them. And if I could stop here for just a minute and recognize that all three of these layers, the layer of family, the layer of religious categories, and the layer of cosmic forces, these are all layers that we can sometimes have a really difficult time talking about in our church. Because we all have really definite ways that we want to think about family. We all have religious categories we prefer God to operate in. And we have really strong opinions about if there is even a cosmic level, if there is even such a thing as demons or Satan or how any of that may or may not work in the world. And so, When we enter into this layered text full of conflict, it is easy to get lost. It's easy to get confused. It's easy to skip over because it's a really dangerous passage. Because Jesus seems to be raising all kinds of questions about family. He seems to be challenging our religious categories, and he seems to be admitting something that many of us may have trouble admitting that there are larger forces at work in the world that we may not be able to see or pin down. And so it's easy to get to this part of Mark's gospel and see all of this conflict breaking out and to just slowly try to back out of the scene and to skip on to a passage that we might understand a bit better than this one because this one feels a bit 
dangerous. But that is not what Mark wants us to do because he shows us that this is not what Jesus does. What Mark shows us is that Jesus uses these opportunities of conflict to bring about clarity to who he is and what God is up to in the world. In other words, Jesus uses this conflict to bring about clarity to his mission. Jesus uses this conflict to bring about clarity to his mission. Jesus' response takes on the family, religious, and cosmic dimensions and clarifies what he's up to in the world. As soon as Jesus deconstructs the logic of the teachers of the law, when he says, if I was being driven out by Satan, would I be doing that by Satan? Because, he says, if I were doing that, then I would just be turning in on myself. And then, in verse 27, he responds to their faulty logic by saying that if you really want to overcome a force, then you go in and you take the force over full on and you tie up the strong man. You overcome them by an outside force that is stronger and more powerful. And that stronger and more powerful one is Jesus himself, the one who John said would be stronger, the one who won the face-off in the desert with Satan, the one who has had demons bowing down to him. Jesus clarifies that his kingdom ministry is about defeating everything that reeks of evil or that is set on accomplishing Satan's purposes in the world. Hell on earth versus heaven on earth. And by clarifying his cosmic role, he, as a result, clarifies his religious role by saying that the work of God that you thought only happened through symbols and the ways that you assumed God to work, well, Jesus lets us know that we're going to have to relabel things when it comes to his work in the world. We're going to have to reconsider just how God is moving through his ministry. Jesus clarifies that his kingdom ministry is about breaking through all of the previously constructed boxes and boundaries that have made God to be safe and predictable for these people. And Jesus lets us know that he is now the litmus test for what counts is God's agenda. And then to top it all off, he goes on to clarify his family agenda. That this work of God in the world completely changes how you think about family. The work of God, the will of God, the kingdom of God. This work of resisting and fighting against all of these forces of evil in the world. This is what unites the family of God. And so Jesus clarifies his role on the cosmic level on the kingdom ministry level, and on the family level. And altogether, Jesus clarifies that his kingdom ministry and his kingdom family is defined by one thing only, those who are fully committed to do the will of God by bringing heaven to earth. 
And, and once we begin to see this clear picture, once we begin to see how this conflict on these three different levels is an opportunity for Jesus to clarify what He's up to on these three different levels, and even more, then we get a better sense of that smudge in the bottom of the corner of this beautiful vista about this thing that we know as the unforgivable sin. You see, this unforgivable sin is not a one-time accident that you may or may not have done 20 years ago that you keep worrying about. In fact, the very fact that you were concerned about it is a clear indicator that, that you did not and have not committed the unforgivable sin. What Jesus is getting at here with this smudge that we can sometimes miss in light of this larger vista is about a way of life. It's about a posture of life. The unforgivable sin is about living in a way that you box God into some devilish category. And as a result, you end up boxing yourself out of the life-giving category. This category-breaking, cosmic-overcoming, family-redefining power of God. It is this way of living in such a way that you are dead set on taking any sign of life and calling it death, any sign of hope and calling it despair, any sign of God's nearness and calling it God's absence, any sign of rightness and calling it wrong, anything that might hint of God and you only see Satan. This unforgivable sin is this way of life that looks at the beautiful vista of God's work in the world, breaking out all around, and then living in such a way where you completely turn yourself off from the purposes and power of God. It's as if you were to turn around and put your back against the good that God is doing in the world. It's not about having a bad day. It's not about having a bad season. It's not about having this one bad incident. But it's about living in the world and labeling the world in such a way that you willfully turn yourself off from the purposes and power of God. And Jesus clarifies that this is what He's up to. That the purposes and power of God breaking out in the world is happening to all kinds of people in all kinds of places at all kinds of times. And He's inviting everyone into that. But you can't invite someone into a way of life if their back is completely turned against you. But instead of Focusing on that, the very fact that you're listening to this, the very fact that you have your Bible open, the very fact that you are struggling and wrestling with what Jesus means, means that you're the kind of person who is trying to see this beautiful vista more and more. That God is not 
done with you, that God is still inviting you and me into this beautiful mission that He helps to clarify in our passage. And Mark wants us to see this beauty, this beautiful mission of God. And so, while we can sometimes spend all of our time trying to get out a small smudge in the bottom corner of the window, we miss what Mark is showing us on the other side of the window, that there is an actual opening in the window, and we can enter into this beautiful mission of God. It's not just something that we sit back and admire, but we can actually enter into it. We're invited into this mission of God through the person of Jesus that is about continuing to bind up the power of Satan and evil in the world. Why? Because there are still people intent on bringing hell to earth. There are still people intent on boxing out God. There are still people intent on telling God where God can and cannot go, to whom God and cannot go, and when God can and cannot show up. So instead, you and I, we are invited into this mission where we actively spread, share, and live out the power of God in the world. In other words, to do God's will. To do God's will is to live out the life, death, burial, and resurrection wherever we find ourselves. To be the kinds of people who are committed to bringing heaven to earth in the same way that Jesus did. And when we step into this beautiful landscape, when we go from mere observers to participators, then we begin to live out this good news wherever we find ourselves. And when we do, what we will find is that what happened with Jesus will also happen with us. It will challenge people. It will create conflict because we may end up challenging notions of family because we will see clearly that those who do the will of God are family. We may challenge the religious categories that people have created, even we have created. But we will see clearly that Jesus is the ultimate litmus test for our lives. We may challenge some people's understanding of unseen forces, but we will see clearly that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we live and operate and exist. And it is that Holy Spirit of God who empowered Jesus to begin the work of spreading God's reign and rule in the world, who continues to empower us as we continue the kingdom agenda of Jesus to bring heaven to earth. And it's by the Spirit of God we are empowered to live into our calling, to be the kinds of people who help bring God's reign and rule to unexpected people, to unexpected places, and at unexpected times. That we are called to be people in our jobs, in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, in our politics, in our community organizations, wherever we find ourselves. But there, we pray with our words and actions that God's kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven. 
And so maybe the question for us this week, or some of the questions for us this week, are to ask wherever we find ourselves, what would it look like for me to bring heaven to this place? What would it look like for me to do God's will in this place? What would it look like to live out the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to this person, to this place, at this time? And when we begin to ask those kinds of questions, we will begin to look to this beautiful vista over and over and over again, and we will step into it, and we will begin to live out a beautiful life. We will begin to live out a kingdom life, and we will begin to be in more sync with the mission and purpose and power of Jesus. So this week, My prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we would move about, listen, learn, speak, and live as though we were men and women seeking to bring heaven to earth, to do God's will, and to be Jesus wherever we find ourselves. Amen.